Uh, we are continuing in our uh, series uh, called From the Start. I also want to tell you, uh, let me just give you a little, a little trick here. You can do one of two things if you want to follow along. We don't have any visuals because we wouldn't have a screen outside. But you can go to pursuitcommunity.church forward slash program, and you can see the scriptures that we're, I'm going to be referencing and the points that I'll be making. Or, even better than that, you can go to our app, and the app has like really cool like fill-ins and like notes that you can take, and at the, it's super cool if you just open up the app, and you just, it should be the featured item right on the front page that you can just click on sermon notes for this morning, and you'll have the entire sermon just at your fingertips. And you'll be able to like put in like if you're one of those people that's a completionist, you can click the gray boxes and type in the words that that are it's going to be super cool. So pull out your app and take a look. I'm actually going to preach from the app this morning. So there you go. I'm, I'm in there with you. Um, so we're continuing our sermon series um, called From the Start, and we're in uh, Genesis, and we're talking through some of these bigger uh, issues or bigger things that God begins from the start. So we've already dealt with. The issue of identity, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago, that we are called to work with God and to be like God and that he made us in his own image and gave us an identity that causes us to be prince and princesses in his kingdom. We talked about last week, we talked about work and why we work. And by the way, just a little caveat, I didn't get to say this last week. I had it written in my sermon. You know, not everything I write in my sermon notes makes it into the sermon. Uh, In fact, I just like chalk that up to the Holy Spirit Sometimes if something doesn't make it in there. Uh, But one of the things I wish made it in last week is to talk about the fact that work is not just in the workplace. That if you're a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad, that's also work. That's you cultivating uh, the next generation to know Jesus. That's you um, practicing dominion that God has asked us to do. That's you filling the earth and subduing and, you know, having dominion. So, you count too. I didn't, didn't say that last week, and so if you're a stay-at-home parent, just know that all that applies to you as well, all that work stuff. Um, and then this week, we're going to talk about marriage. It's a fun topic to have on Father's Day. Um, and so let me start with this caveat, because I'm going to talk about marriage now for the rest of the sermon. Uh, this is applicable to everybody, uh, but if you're not married... Uh, Maybe it's something that you have decided to live a life of celibacy, and maybe you don't want to be married. Maybe it just hasn't been your time yet. Maybe you're young, and you, know, you haven't had a chance to be married yet. Um, there, I recognize there's plenty of people who aren't married, and I feel this way sometimes when I talk about parenting, too, where sometimes you're like, I'm not a parent, so I'm not really sure why you're preaching about parenting. Um, it still applies to you, and I want to say a couple things about being not married. Paul says... That if you're not married, you're actually more useful for the gospel than somebody who is tied down to a, to a marriage. And we'll talk about why that is as we talk through the sermon today. But I want to say to you, you count, we see you, we care about you. Whether you're single or divorced or you have are widowed or whatever. Like, you are more useful for the gospel. You can make more impact for God's kingdom if you're in that scenario. Paul says, don't get married unless you're compelled to do it, right? So I just want to start there and say thank you for what you bring to the God's kingdom in your singleness. Um, and then I want to look at why God gave us marriage and what the point of it was. And in all of these things that we've been talking about, there's kind of this reason 
that God instituted and gave us these things. Identity, he gave it to us so we would understand who we are in relationship to him. Work, he gave us something to do in his kingdom. And then marriage, uh, we're going to see today, solves a problem that he sees in his creation. And one of the interesting things is that if you step back and look at God's creation, right, as he's creating everything, everything seems to be like completed with its um, comp- complementary piece, right? So as God creates things, he creates sort of the complementary piece that completes it, right? So uh, for instance, it's almost like things have pairs, right? So you have the heavens and you have the earth, right? God completes these things by bringing in a complementary pair into the scenario, right? Darkness, he brings in light, and all of a sudden light and darkness complete each other, sort of this complementary pair, right? Evening, morning, talks about the rhythm of creation, that there's evening and morning every single day, that these things create a completeness, right? And they're complementary pairs. Land and sea, plants and animals, birds and sea creatures, everything seems to have its sort of equal and opposite thing that brings to completion, Right? These things kind of all make sense when you look at creation, that God's doing something, he's bringing to completion everything. And every time he creates something, he creates one of these pairs. He creates land and sea, he creates light and dark, he creates these different types of creatures that complement each other. He steps back, and what does he say at the end of every day? We talked about it last week. What does he say? It's good. He creates a whole bunch of stuff. He says, this is good, right? I just created this, and it's good. This is really good, and this is really good, and this is really good. And then he creates... Adam and Eve, or he creates Adam, essentially, on day six, right? And he steps back, and this is the first time in his creation where he says, it's not exactly good. Something's missing. There's, this is not completed. This, the equal sort of complementary pair to this is not here, right? And so that's what we're going to take a look at today. It's like why he decides to do the creation um, or the, the mission that he gives them, why he decides to make a team to do the mission that he gives them. And so I want to start here in Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse uh, 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And you can insert lame joke after lame joke after lame joke here about how men, you know, shouldn't be alone, that we're, you know, just, Yeah. I'm just going to skip over that because it feels like, okay, we, we all see that, right? We all see that. But, but even more than that, I, I do think it sh- could say people, any person. Like, one of the biggest problems we have today in our world is people living in isolation, right? Like, we have more access to more relationships, more people than we've ever had in our entire lives. We go online and we have thousands and thousands of acquaintances that we barely know on social media apps, right, that we... We present ourselves to the world in a certain way and hope that hundreds of our closest friends like and, you know, interact with our our content and they're they're like, that these are our relationships that we have and yet we have so many people living in complete isolation in the midst of having more relationships than anyone in history has ever had access to. The isolation is a problem for any human, not just, you know, men who can be dumb sometimes, Right? You've seen the, the memes about men and the stuff that they do and why men have a shorter lifespan, right? Like, men are, we're not good alone, but also women are not good alone. Nobody is good alone. Nobody's good in isolation. I think as we kind of warred through the pandemic over the last couple of years, one of the things that came out of that was just how terrible isolation 
is and can be for anybody. That we're not made to do this alone. Right? We're not made to do this alone. One of the things that we focus on the most at this church is community, is small groups, is serving teams. It's being with and getting to know and being real with people. That we're called to do this. And when we live in isolation, we, we grow, we, we get ourselves to a point where it's not a good situation. God steps back and says, not good. Not good for men to be alone. Not good for women to be alone. Not good for anyone to be isolated and on their own. That's not the way we were designed. We were designed to have community. We were designed to do things in teams. We were designed to work with other people and have relationships that are real with other people. And if you find yourself having a million acquaintances that are this deep, what you may find is that you're living completely in isolation because none of those relationships are the ones that will actually fill the need of having real community in your life and being really connected. And so God steps back and says, hey, if this is just Adam, this isn't going to work. If this is just Adam, it's not because he's man, right? It's not because he's dumb and he's going to do dumb stuff and he's going to hurt himself and he's going to, right? Like, no, it's because he's a human and he was created for community and he was created for, uh, you know, relationship and intimacy. And without those things, what are we talking about here? He says, not good. This is the first thing in creation. It doesn't make sense. That doesn't work. That is not good. And so God steps back and says, I will make a helper suitable for him. And the translation of this is just so difficult to understand because we're going from like old school, old school Hebrew into modern American language. And when you read the word helper, it's just completely just full of the wrong idea. Right? When we think of helper, I think of somebody, like I think of having my, my son help me with something where he's like handing me the wrench or he's like, you know, holding the light in the right spot, which by the way, is like the most impossible job ever. If you ever held the light for your dad, you probably for a little while hated your dad, right? For at least a couple minutes. Like you think of a helper as somebody who comes alongside and provides this sort of like side, you know, uh, the, the sort of comes alongside and kind of props up the person who's really in charge or really doing the work. I think a lot of people, that's the way they run their marriage, by the way. All the perks of being, you know, in charge, they all come to me, and my helper is here to make sure that I get those perks, right? My, my subservient helper is supposed to come along and prop me up. That's the way a lot of marriages run. Those marriages aren't healthy, and that's not the way God intended for man and woman to, to interact. This word helper is, like, full of incredible meaning that you ne- do not pick up in English at all. This word, it's the word azer. I've preached on this before. You can go back and look. Uh, I think it was about a year and a half ago I preached on this, uh, and I did a whole sermon on this word. And I just can tell you this, that this word helper is used mostly in the Old Testament to refer to God who comes to be the help that Israel needs in their most grievous time of need. This is a word that gets used in a powerful sometimes even a military kind of way. In other words, oh God, be our Azer, our helper as we go against this nation of people. Come and be alongside of us and guide us to victory against our enemy. Or God, be my help in times of need, my Azer. This word is not, not subservient, you know, flashlight holder. That's not what it means. 
it really, honestly, the word could be looked at as being um, someone who is alike and different. Right? So as, as he looks at Adam, he says, this isn't right. right? I, this, this isn't going to work. So I'm going to create someone who is like Adam and different than Adam. And that is a great way of thinking about the, the differences between men and women. There are things about us that are very much alike, and there are things about us that are very much different. I, we had a birthday party um, a couple weeks ago for my daughter, and so she had like nine like nine-year-old girls. Uh, this was her golden birthday. I, don't, I didn't even know what that was. Um, and they, were, they sat down and did a craft. They were painting these canvas bags, and it was just, they had, had music going, and we were just, they were having a little tea and drinking and eating cake, and everything was like completely calm, and just like these girls were sitting around the table, and they were just chatting. And it was, like a, it was like a nine-year-old version of what women would be doing, right, if I gave them the same craft in the same room. Like, it just made sense. Like, it looked like and felt like the way it should, a little girl's birthday party, right? And then I started to think about, like, what that room would have looked like if it was a nine-year-old boy's birthday party. <laughs> like, cake being tossed at each other, the room being ripped apart. Like, it, I wouldn't have done it in that room. I would have definitely given them a gym or thrown them outside. Like... I would have, like, I want them in a place where I can hose them off afterwards, right? Like, like, that's, but the difference between these two things was, like, stark as I was sitting there thinking about it. We, we have to step back and say, like, there are differences in gender, and they're not, look, I'm not trying to make a, a statement about all men or all women, right? Uh, you know, I, we did get trouble when we were talking about, oh, hey, let's do a men's event where we throw axes, and some of the women were like, why can't we do a women's event where we throw axes? Like, I hear you, Okay. I got you. I hear you. We, we can do that. That's fine. I'm not making a blanket statement about everything, but I am saying, right, that there is a difference between men and women, and we're, we are really dumb to look away from that and say that's not a thing. It is a thing. It's not just nurture. It is also nature. It's both. It's both of these things. And so when God looks at Adam, he says, like, hey, this is not going to work in isolation, right? This is not a thing. Let me build somebody who's like him and different than him, who is his pair, who completes him, right? Who knew Jerry, the writers of Jerry Maguire were like onto something, right? All the young people in the room are like, we don't know what you're talking about. Just know the human head weighs eight pounds, okay? And that you complete me, and that you had me at hello. If you're young, just go watch that movie. Um, but that God looks at Adam and says, hey, we've got to complete this. This isn't right. And so I'm going to make somebody who's like and dislike him. And I'm going to bring somebody in who is a helper, who's somebody who is like what God does to Israel in those times of need, where he comes in and saves the day, and he comes in and provides the help that only he can provide. Like, I, I want to step back and say this is not a like, subservient role this is a role that completes the order of God's creation. Like, there is an important place, women, that God thought about how he wanted to create you and created you on purpose to complete the order of creation. Okay? That's important that we say that. It's something that we really value and believe. This is why one of the reasons why we don't think it's a good idea to have a completely male leadership team 
at the top of our church. In fact, most churches that get themselves in trouble have only men elders because we're not good alone. Also, if I made the leadership team at the top of our church all women, it wouldn't be a smart thing. We need to work together and we need to fulfill the order that God created and have men and women working together so we see the complete character of God in that team working side by side. That's what we believe at this church. That's important to us. This is why our small groups, most of them are not just a men's group or not just a women's group. We do have some sometimes that are a men's group or a women's group, and that's fine. Those are, those are good for certain situations. But most of our groups are men and women together because you see the full character of God when men and women are together. This completes the order of creation. Okay? This is God saying, hey, here's the equal and opposite pair that needs to be part of this in order to make this all work. Okay? And so that's how we kind of process this. So God looks at Adam and says, it's not good. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. And it says, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Right? So the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to all the wild animals. This is, this is Adam practicing dominion. Right? So God says to him, hey, I want you to fill the earth, and I want you to have dominion. And I want you to be in charge, and I want you to, to take care of all this creation. And that's what's going on here. Adam is put in his place of being in charge, and he's going to go ahead and name everything and be in charge. But for Adam, there wasn't a suitable helper. Right? There wasn't somebody like him and different than him. There wasn't somebody who fulfilled the creation order. And so, um, so the, Lord let, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out one of man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib that he'd taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of me. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, so that they, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they, were, and they felt no shame. And so God creates, completes his creation, right? Brings order to his creation, both man and woman woman, right? And then it says that they had this marriage beginning, right? That they were made one flesh and that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I I think when I was younger, I would just sort of giggle at that, right? So like you're telling me that like sin came into the world and we lost the ability to just be naked around each other. Like we used to just be running around naked and then sin came into the world and kind of ruined all that. And I would kind of laugh about that, like, (laughs) you know, like when I was like a teenager or whatever, uh, we'll, we'll touch on this in just a second, but like this is God's order. This is how he designed marriage to be. He designed a man and a woman to make a commitment to each other for life and to have incredible intimacy in their relationship. Right? To be a team taking care of the creation that he, he had made. Right? To, to be a team of people filling the earth and, and having dominion over it. To be partners with him in his creation. And so as we kind of look at this, you have to stop and ask the question, is God doing something here where he's describing this situation or is he prescribing something to us about what marriage is? 
And I would, I would argue for the second. So the first, if you're, by the way, if you're following along in the app, here's your first fill-in. Okay, those of you guys get ready for it. Uh, Genesis represents God's ideal for marriage, and it is prescriptive. So what we see in Genesis chapter 2 is not meant to just describe Genesis chapter 2. It is meant to give us a theology of marriage for us to understand what marriage is and why it exists, what the point of it is, and why God created it, and why he gave it to us, and what his original intention was. It's his ideal, and it's prescriptive. If you're following along, there's two of your fill-ins right there. And that's an important question to ask anytime you're reading anything in Scripture. Is this descriptive or prescriptive? When I read this, is this just describing the scene or the situation in this situation, or is this prescribing me something that I should believe moving forward about the world, about his creation, about what he's doing? Okay? And the reason why I would say to you that this is prescriptive is because both Jesus and Paul, when they talk about marriage, go back to Genesis 2 and quote Genesis 2 when they're talking about what marriage is. Right? It's a very simple description of understanding what marriage is, and both Paul and Jesus, Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, and Jesus both use this passage to talk about marriage. And you're like, well, Jesus didn't really talk about you know, marriage. No, he did. He affirmed Genesis chapter 2 when he talked about marriage. Right? There's a lot of things Jesus didn't talk about directly. Right? Jesus didn't talk about your screen time. Right? Jesus didn't talk about all this. He didn't talk about human trafficking. Right? Jesus didn't talk about, you know, there's some kind of hot-button topics. He didn't talk about transgenderism or homosexuality or some of these things. But he did talk about marriage. Right? He didn't talk about sort of whatever issue it is that you may be thinking about when you ask, like, did Jesus talk about this issue? Did he give us a, a clear mandate on how we should deal with one of these social issues? But he did affirm stuff. I, this is one of my favorite things. Like, people will say, well, you know, Jesus didn't, didn't talk about tithing. And we don't really preach tithing at our church. You know, we just say, hey, if you're thinking about giving, just make your decision what you're going to give and give it with a joyful heart and do it as an act of worship. And that's a, by the way, if you're trying to like get a corporate jet for your church, it's a terrible way to go. I'm just going to throw that out there. You want to do health and wealth gospel all the way around. Um, but we say, hey, make the decision, let it be part of your worship and just give what you feel compelled to give, right? But Jesus, when he talked about giving, he actually affirmed a, a tithe. He actually said, he was talking to the, to the Pharisees, and he said to them, hey, uh, you guys tithe on the smallest things in your life. You tithe on your, your, uh, your, like, your like sage, and your, like, like he was talking about like some of the very small things that they had. He said, you guys tithe on these very small things, these herbs and spices and stuff. And he's like, and that's really good. That's a good thing. But he never actually said you should tithe. Jesus does this. He, he tells us things that we have to then extrapolate and understand what is he talking about. And when he talks about marriage, he goes back to Genesis chapter 2 because it's prescriptive and it's God's ideal. It's not descriptive just in Genesis. So here's what uh, Jesus has to say about marriage in Mark chapter 10. And in this situation, he's actually talking about divorce and he's actually giving the pharisees a hard time for allowing so much divorce in their culture and kind of making loopholes for people to choose divorce he's basically saying you should we should be doing everything we can to avoid divorce and here's really what i say about marriage and this is what he says mark chapter 10 verse 6 
He says, but in the beginning of all creation, God made them male and female. He quotes Genesis chapter 1 right there. And then, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Did you pick that up? That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 that he quotes. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus affirms marriage from Genesis chapter 2, and he says, I, I want you to understand where I'm at is one woman and one man completing the creation order, making a lifetime commitment to each other. That's where I'm, that's where I'm at. Jesus affirms that Genesis chapter 2, and he says, and this is the ideal. Now look, we live in this really crazy fallen world, and it's difficult. Sin is ruining everything. We've work with and deal with people who have marriages that are not the ideal. Sin has come in and created all kinds of difficult situations, right? And we've walked with people through all kinds of those situations. I'm not saying there's something wrong with you or that you're, you know, if you don't have the ideal marriage that Jesus has affirmed here. By the way, he wasn't married himself, right? Again, if you're single, that's not a bad thing. Right? But if you don't have the marriage that looks like Genesis chapter 2, one woman and one man for life, forever, making that commitment to each other, that's the world that we live in. Most of us don't make it to the ideal. Right? Most of our marriages are not perfect. It's one of the things that we really try to focus on here. Is like we're not asking for perfection. And we're not holding you to the perfect standard that we see throughout Scripture, what we're saying is, hey, we're all disciples of Jesus. We're all moving closer to Jesus. We're all growing in our relationship with Jesus. And hopefully, you are growing in your relationship with Jesus too. And your marriage, hopefully, is looking more like that ideal as you are married longer and longer period. But that's not the case for a lot of people. And there's a lot of people that we get that come into our church. They come in with baggage. They come in with a broken marriage or a broken situation. And we meet the person where they're at and we work with them where they're at. And that's what we do. We show grace to people. But that's not what the Bible has set up marriage for. There's a reason why it looks like this, because this completes God's created order. This is what it looks like to be in this relationship that God gave us. He gave us this gift of marriage. Here's Paul talking about it in Ephesians. Paul says, this is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. He says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife. Sorry, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So this is Paul talking about it. Same situation. Paul is affirming Genesis, or Genesis chapter 2 when he talks about marriage. And we could get into sort of the nitty-gritty about, you know, what marriage should look like and the ideal and all this, that's fine. But I actually want to talk about the purpose of marriage for a second. And this is uh, another one of your fill-ins if you're following me. I believe marriage was designed to create intimacy. Marriages create intimacy. And there's a lot more going on in our marriages than we think. It's like, why did God give us 
this idea of marriage. Well, it's because he wanted us to work as a team, because he wanted God's completed order in this, in this little microcosm of society. Like this is a little perfect union and then this is going to do something else within the culture. But I think there's more to it than that. And when we start to see our marriages as being missional, we start to understand there's more going on here than just us being happy for the rest of our lives. The consumeristic kind of idea of what marriage is is that, hey, this is for your happiness. This is to create happiness for you for the rest of your life. And that's not kind of the picture that the Bible paints. I'm not, I'm not saying you have to live unhappy. That's, I'm not. What I'm saying is there's a purpose for your marriage that's not just your own happiness. There's a problem that we have in our marriages where we start to look at them like contracts. And Scripture kind of lays out this other idea that it might be more of a covenant than a contract. Um, so try to, folk, try to think about this for a second. We talk about this a lot when we talk about being a partner at this church, being somebody who's like a covenant member at this church, right? That being part of a covenant doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting something out of it. Like when you become a member of this church, you don't get like better parking. We don't have signs out there that say covenant member parking that are like right near the door. You don't get like a discount on what you give to the church, right? Like there's not like a rebate. You don't get like cheap gas or like, um, you know, inexpensive steaks, right, with your membership, but you're making a commitment to the rest of the people at the church in a covenant. It's more about what you bring to the table as opposed to what you get out of it. When we think about contracts, we're thinking about the opposite. I was was having a conversation with somebody the other day, and they were like, yeah, we're thinking about switching over to that wireless carrier, but we can't. And I'm like, why? Why can't you? Well, because we have to pay off our phones. So we're just stuck with the crappier wireless service and more expensive bill, because we'd have to pay off the phones. And if we did pay off the phones, then it would take us three and a half years to net money back by switching over to this other carrier. I think a lot of people are in marriages like that. Where they're like running the numbers and they're going, I guess it doesn't make sense for me to, to get out of this marriage. I'll just continue on with it. Or they go, hey, this is a good time to switch. I've been checking out. There's, there's like some other options, other opportunities that, you know, there's a deal right now with that girl I knew in high school So let me see if I can get out of this marriage. We think of our marriages like contracts. Hey, if you provide A, B, and C for me, then I'll stay in this relationship. Hey, let's make sure that the level of service is up to what I expected. I don't really want to have a conversation with the manager about how things are dropping off here. We think of contracts. That's the way our, our, our world works, but that's not what a covenant, that's not what a covenant is. I want you to understand God works in covenants. He makes promises to us that we don't fulfill anything on the other end of it. And he keeps his promise. And he calls us in our marriages to do the same thing. Almost like there's this rhythm of being in a marriage where, you know, we we mess up, we make mistakes, we, we we show each other forgiveness, mercy, grace. We find ourselves, you know, working together to continue on because it's a covenant because no matter what, we're, we've decided to commit ourselves to this other person. It's why in the marriage ceremony we say, hey, the circumstances don't matter in this marriage, right? It, whether we're sick or in health, whether we're rich or poor, right? We make these vows to each other because it's a covenant between the two partners. And this is the way God intended for it to be. He wanted it to be a covenant between a man and woman for life. Not a contract that we shop around every so often when we're unhappy with the service that we're getting. Like, that's not what a marriage is, and that's what a marriage is in this culture. It's a contract. 
You hold up your end of the bargain, I'll hold up my end of the bargain. Maybe we make it. Maybe we're happy. But that's not how God works. When we find ourselves in difficult moments or times where we want to bail or times when we want to run or times when we want to hide or times when we want to sweep things under the rug, we don't do that. We are committed to each other and we find a way. And we work on those things. And even when we find ourselves in situations where the other person isn't living up to their end of the bargain, we find a way. That's what it looks like to be in a covenant. That's what God is calling us to. And these marriages create intimacy. I don't know how anyone who doesn't have Christ at the center of their life finds a marriage that works and finds intimacy in that marriage. Because it is a dance of forgiveness and grace and mercy. It's almost like the marriage was designed to look like the gospel. Is anybody following me here? That's what it is. These marriages, yes, I hope you're happy. I mean, I really do want you to be happy, but that's not why marriage exists. I know that sounds crazy, because you're like, it's only for my happiness. I, only, I should only be happy. And you've heard the conversation, well, if you're not happy, you shouldn't really stay in that marriage. You're not doing yourself a service, because, no, it's a covenant. You're called into it. And when you make that vow, you take that vow seriously, and you work to make sure. And what is created in that moment is intimacy. The only place where you can lay yourself bare and share everything about yourself is in a covenant. To say, here are my hopes and my dreams and my screw-ups and my messiness and my, I'm here for you to listen to the same thing. And the only reason we can create intimacy in this is because it's a covenant. Because we are committing to this forever. That's the ideal. And it's designed to show the world the gospel. Look at the the last fill-in here. Marriages are gospel images in our culture. Godly marriages are gospel images in our culture. And God is so good at giving us pictures that help us understand really complex things. The entire temple system of the Old Testament is just pointing us to the person of Jesus, right? He gives us these images of things so that we'll understand and be able to process how big of a deal something will be later. This is why Jesus teaches in parables, right? He, he gives these fishermen parables about fishing, and he gives these farmers parables about farming so that they'll be able to wrap their heads around concepts that should blow their mind. And that's what our marriages are to the culture around us. They are designed to show the gospel. This is what Paul says. I already read it to you, but I'm going to reread it. Verse 32 of Ephesians chapter 5. This is a profound mystery. The idea that one man and one woman could be together for life and could create this incredible, beautiful, intimate relationship with one another. It's a profound mystery. And he goes, but I'm not talking about Christ. Sorry, but I am talking about Christ and the church. He says, you thought I was talking about marriage. Ha ha! I was talking about Christ and the church because there's a beautiful amount of intimacy in the relationship that Jesus offers to us and we can lay ourselves bare in that relationship and he is committed to us for life whether we follow through and do the dance or not. That there is incredible grace and mercy offered to us that the gospel is the core foundational piece of what transforms the world and in our marriages we have a chance to be missional and to see them as 
gospel images in the world around us. You know, the Jews were really careful about misusing the name of God and about creating images of God. That There was no image of God, right? This was the God who is uh, omnipotent and omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's all-powerful. And you can't create an image of him. Right? You can't create a cow that looks like him. Right? This is what they tried to do. This is what the Jews tried to do when Moses went up on the mountain. Right? You can't do that. Like one of the Ten Commandments, don't create an image. Why do they not create images of this God? Because... Who was made in the image of God? We. We were. We are all images of God. You ask yourself the question, what does God look like? He looks a lot like you. And when he brings us together in marriages, that relationship looks a lot like his gospel to the world around us. I'm not... I don't... I'm trying to think how to say this. Give me one second. I think we get tied up in trying to fight a culture war. We're like, hey, what's the newest thing that I got to boycott to make a point? How do I make sure that I don't put my money towards this, that, or the other thing? I'm like, knock yourself out. I don't really care. We spend less time thinking about how our marriage will impact the world around us by it showing the world what intimacy looks like, and it's showing the world around us what the gospel is. As we fight for each other in our marriages, and as we put that on display in culture, you know what that does? It draws people into it. And they say, why do these people have this just unbelievable love and intimacy? And it's because at the center of that marriage is Jesus. Like, fine, go do politics. Like, I'm not even telling you don't do that stuff. I don't care. Do whatever you think you are called to do, but also focus on your marriage as a, as a, a, a guidepost to the rest of the world on what the gospel actually looks like. That's what Jesus intended when he created marriage, that there would be these intimacy, kind of these centers, these little hubs of intimacy, and that we would create kids who are safe and families who were safe in, within that intimate circle. And we would draw people into that intimate circle as we kind of live that thing out. And that the world around us would be changed by the fact that all of us were living in this way. That God wanted to affect culture, not by, again, not by creating all these rules. Jesus makes it really clear that it's not about religion, it's about relationship. He wants to create situations of intimacy and draw people in, not to create this sort of heavy-handed religious system with all these rules. This is what it looks like to be in a Christian marriage. That this intimacy is a place of unconditional love. That it's a place of forgiveness. That it's a place of serving one another. It's a place of treating each other like Jesus. And you know what's really interesting as I was thinking about this this week? It's like when we come at it from this perspective, we get to be Jesus to our partners. All of us get to play the role of Jesus in that gospel-centered, intimate relationship. I just feel like sometimes we're trying to create this culture war that we've already lost. That we're going to change the world by not giving our money to whatever thing is supposed to be boycotted that week. 
And we're actually neglecting the most important thing we have to show Jesus to the world around us. I want to I finish just by praying for, for us. And I want to I stop and say, I know every marriage is not in that place. So can I first pray for those of you who may be struggling in your marriage or maybe, maybe wondering why your marriage isn't working the way you want it to work. And I also want to encourage you and tell you that there's hope here. The gospel is the center of what we do, and we'd love to walk beside you as you struggle. So let me first pray for you, and then I want to pray for all of us as we move forward in showing the world what it looks like to follow Jesus through our marriages. And God, I just, uh, right now I pray for any of us who are struggling, struggling to find that intimacy, to find that forgiveness, to find that grace that's necessary to be Jesus to the other person in our marriage. God, would you just, would you just begin to bring a new day God, would you begin to melt away feelings of resentment, feelings of anger, feelings of frustration? God, would you just enter into those those cracks, those things that seem to threaten our relationship, God? And would you bring uh, just an incredible amount of grace and mercy into those moments, God? Would we see that our relationship with you, it empowers us to treat our spouse the way you would treat us? And Jesus, I pray that the marriages in this church would be like lights in a dark place, that it would just draw the world, the culture, into our relationship with you. That we would be able to show by the way that we treat our spouses, by the way that we love, by the way that we create intimacy in our families, God, that you would take those moments, those intimate settings, those family circles, God, and you would just draw people into those where they feel safe and they feel loved and they feel pointed into a relationship with you, God. I pray that we would be missional, we would see this as a mission to reach the world through this incredible opportunity of marriage. And God, even as we process those of us who aren't married or who are divorced or who have been through the ringer, God, I just pray that this church would be just the most beautiful place of grace and healing that it would be the most beautiful place of support and encouragement. God, that you would use this, this church, this body, to come alongside and care for every person in every situation. God, that your gospel would be the center of everything that we do, that your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy would be at the center of everything that we do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.